Once again, we've come to the end of a liturgical year. Once again, the church asks us to consider the end of the world. Now, even though this is an intrinsically exciting topic, we're not supposed to have a chicken little, the sky is falling kind of tizzy fit every time we think about it, okay? As we said before, that great Belgian Jesuit, St. John Birchmans, gives us a perfect example of how we ought to react when we're thinking about topics like the end of the world. One day, during the time assigned for the Jesuits to be at recreation, St. John Birchmans was shooting pool, and one of his fellow seminarians came up to him and said, Hey, what would you do right now if you found the world was going to end? And St. John Birchman said to him, I'd keep right on shooting pool. Now that might sound like a strange story here. What's the point? St. John Birchman was supposed to be taking recreation. That's what his rule said. That's what he's supposed to be doing then. And that's exactly what he was doing. And he's in the state of grace. In other words, he's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing at that particular moment in time. And that's what Christ our Lord expects us to be doing. Our duty in our state in life. If we're in the state of grace... We're doing this, our duty in our state life. We're doing everything that's expected of us, okay? The important thing is not when in history we live, but how we die. If we die in the state of grace, then we've made it, okay? This is just basic training for heaven. That's all this is, basic training for heaven. We're just trying to get to. It's a short period of time. And eternity is forever and ever. And all we're trying to do here is get through. How? By doing our duty in our state life and stand in a state of grace. Okay. Now, before we get started, we need to quickly review something else. What the word type means. What's a type? A type is a person, a thing or an action that actually exists, but it's also intended by God to prefigure or foreshadow a future person thing or action. So type is a person, thing, or action that actually exists, but God intends it to prefigure or point towards a future person, thing, or action. We'll review a few examples to see how this works. In the book of Judges, we see Jael, the woman who killed an enemy general by pounding a tent stake through his head and saving the people of Israel. Later in the book, we see a woman who saved the people of Israel when she dropped an upper millstone on the head of another enemy general. And in the book of Judith, we see Judith who saves Israel when she cuts the head off another enemy general. Now, each, in each one of those cases, there are at least three types. Obviously, the people of Israel really existed in and of themselves. But Israel was also intended by God to prefigure the Catholic Church. So Israel is a type of the Catholic Church. The enemy generals also really existed but they were intended by God to represent Satan and the enemies of God. So the enemy generals are types of the devil, okay? And the woman, or those women, who crushed the head of these enemy generals really existed by two. But they're all intended by God to prefigure her. And if you look at the statue there, what is she doing? She's crushing the head of a serpent. That's what our lady's doing. So when we consider these women and what they did for Israel, we can see foreshadowings of Our Lady and what she does for the Catholic Church. Okay, so what's a type? A type is a person, a thing, or an action that really exists, but it's intended by God to prefigure, to foreshadow, to point towards a future person, thing, or action. Okay, so much for the introduction. Now let's turn to the topic at hand. 
Today we'll consider a ruler which the fathers and doctors of the church have always considered to be a very clear type of the Antichrist. In fact, this man was seen as such a clear type of the Antichrist that the myth actually rose that he would personally return again as the real thing, the real Antichrist at the end of the world. Apocalypse 17.7 And the beast which thou sawest was and is not and shall come up out of the bottomless pit. Father Cornelius Lapide comments, quote, St. Jerome said many of the ancient fathers think that Nero is not yet dead, but he will be revived at the end of the world, and that Nero himself will be the Antichrist. In the book The City of God, St. Augustine says that some suspect in the future Nero will be resurrected as the Antichrist. Others suppose that he is not even dead, but he is hidden so that he might be supposed to be killed, and that he now lives in concealment. And he will live until he is revealed in his own time and restored to his kingdom. But this opinion seems amazing to St. Augustine, close quote, Cornus Lapide. It's not the teaching, it's just a lot of people thought this much of him, that he was that clear a type that he might be the one to come back. It's not going to be Nero, but we get the idea of how clear a type he is. Let's spend a few minutes this morning getting to know a little bit more about Nero. Now, because we're dealing with such a monster, this will be very, very heavily edited. <clears throat> Apocalypse 13.2 and the dragon gave the beast his own strength and great power. Cornelius Lapide, quote, Nero himself was a sorcerer and therefore delighted in Simon Magus and other such sorcerers, so much so that concerning him, Pliny writes, quote, the very greatest of all the sorcerers that ever existed, he consulted the demons concerning whatever sort of suspicion he had. Close quote. Lapide continues, therefore Nero himself was the instrument of the dragon. Close quote. So Nero, the sorcerer, skilled in the black arts. Apocalypse 21.8 But for the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and fornicators and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their portion shall be in the pool burning with fire and brimstone. The pagan offers Suetonius, quote, The father of Nero was a man hateful in every walk of life. He slew one of his own freedmen for refusing to drink as much as he ordered. In the village, he suddenly whipped up his team and purposely ran over and killed a boy. Right in the Roman form, he gouged out the eye of a Roman knight. While receiving the congratulations of his friends at the birth of Nero, his father said that nothing that was not abominable and a harm to the public could be born of his wife and himself. Close quote. How about Nero's mom? She's from a completely insane, diabolical family herself. She's the sister of the Emperor Gaius, that's Caligula, and a niece of the Emperor Claudius. Nero's dad was his mom's first husband. Her second husband died mysteriously right after he got done throwing out a will, giving everything to her. Then in the year 48, she got married to her third husband, the Emperor Claudius, who had a son of his own by another uh, marriage. She manipulated Claudius to adopt Nero as his own and married Nero to Claudius's daughter. Claudius conveniently died after eating a plate of poison mushrooms and Nero became emperor at the ripe old age of about 17. Suetonius, quote, Although at first his acts of wantonness, lust, extravagance, avarice, and cruelty were gradual and secret, and might be condoned as follies of youth, yet even then their nature was such that no one doubted they were defects of his character and not due to his age. At night he would range about the streets playing pranks, which however were very far from harmless, for he used to beat men as they came home from dinner, 
stabbing any who resisted them and throwing them into the sewers. Nero attempted the life of his stepbrother by poison. He procured the poster from an arch poisoner, and when the effect was slower than he anticipated, he called the woman to him and flogged her with his own hand, charging that she administered a medicine instead of a poison. He forced her to mix as swift and instant a poison as she knew how in his own room before his very eyes, and he threw some of it before a pig. The beast instantly fell dead, whereupon he ordered that the poison be taken to the dining room and given to his stepbrother. The boy dropped dead at the very first taste, but Nero lied to his guest and declared that he was seized with a falling sickness to which he was subject, and the next day had him hastily and unceremoniously buried in a pouring rain. Close quote. True love in a family. After a while, Nero grew tired of his mom. Suetonius, quote, His mother offended him, so he determined to have her life. And after three times attempting to poison her and finding that she had made herself immune by antidotes, he tampered with the seating of her bedroom, contriving a mechanical device for loosening its panels and dropping them upon her when she slept. When news of this leaked out, he devised a collapsible boat, escorting her to it in high spirits. The rest of the night, he passed sleepless in intense anxiety, awaiting the outcome of his design. On learning that everything had gone wrong and that she had escaped by swimming, driven to desperation, he ordered that his mother be put to death. Close quote. Besides all this, let's just say that Nero was infamous for every kind of sick, disgusting perversion. As the pagan author Tacitus noted, quote, Nero polluted himself by every lawful or lawless indulgence and did not omit a single abomination which could heighten his depravity. Close quote. He had his first wife smothered in a steam bath and married another woman. He got tired of her, so he kicked her to death while she was pregnant with his child. He found another wife. Besides these wives, he also had three other marriages of a certain kind that's currently politically correct and arising in certain places. Suetonius, quote, He was so disgusting that after defiling almost every part of his body, he at last devised a kind of game which covered with the skin of some wild animal who was let loose from a cage and attacked men and women who were bound to stakes, who were then killed by one of his favorite freemen. A murderous pervert from a family of murderous perverts. Apocalypse 13.3 And all the earth was in admiration after the beast. Suetonius, quote, Nero thought there was no other way of enjoying riches and money than by riotous extravagance. Declaring that only stingy fellows kept a correct account of what they spent were fine and genuinely magnificent gentlemen wasted and squandered. Accordingly, he made presents and wasted money without limit. He never wore the same garment twice. He played at dice for 400,000 coins a point. He fished with a gold net drawn by cords woven of purple and scarlet threads. It is said he never made a journey with less than a thousand carriages, and his mules were shod with silver. He built a palace called the Golden House. Its vestibule was large enough to contain a colossal, colossal statue of the emperor 120 feet high. It was so extensive it had a triple colonnade a mile long. There was a pond to like to see, surrounded with buildings to represent cities, besides tracts of country, varied by tilled fields, vineyards, pastures, and woods, with great numbers of wild and domestic animals. In the rest of the house, all parts were overlaid with gold and adorned with gems and mother of pearl. There were dining rooms with fretted ceilings of ivory, whose panels could turn and shower down flowers, and were fitted with pipes for sprinkling the guests with perfumes. The main banquet hall was circular and constantly revolved day and night like the heavens. Yet baths supplied with sea and water and sulfur water. When an edifice was finished in this style, and he dedicated it, 
he deigned to say nothing more in the way of approval than he was at least beginning to be housed like a human being. Close quote. So we have a man accustomed to living in an absolutely obscene standard of luxury. Apocalypse 13.7. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And power was given him over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. Tacitus, quote, to get rid of the report that he himself had ordered the burning of Rome, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. Accordingly, an arrest was made, first of all, of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or nailed to crosses, or doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting his show in the circus while he mingled with the people and dressed of a charioteer stood aloft in a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. Close quote. Now, the circus they're speaking about, the Vatican Basilica is built there. And the gardens were up there, around where the Vatican is right now. So to keep the gardens lit at night, they'd tie Catholics up, live ones, pour pitch on them, and light them on fire. And then he'd ride around his chariot. You know, this was the garden party, and it's burning Catholics to keep it lit. This is Nero. So he's a great persecutor of the church. Apocalypse 13.5. And power was given to him to act 42 months. His persecution began in November of the year 64, shortly after the breaking out of the fire, and lasted until his death in June of the year 68. That's three and a half years or 42 months. Apocalypse 13, 5 and 6. And it was given to him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name. In Ephesus and Cyprus, inscriptions have been found which refer to Nero as Almighty God and Savior. He he has coins, there were coins, Roman coins coined, where he's Apollo, you know, the the God Apollo and so forth. So he's a blasphemer. Apocalypse 13.4. And they adored the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Nero demanded to be worshipped as a god. The pagan author Diocasius, quote, A lofty platform had been erected on which were sent images of Nero. An Armenian king approached and paid them reverence, then, after sacrificing to them, he publicly fell down before Nero himself and said, Master, I am thy slave, and I have come to thee, my God, to worship thee as I do Mithra. The destiny thou spinnest for me shall be mine. Close quote. So here you have this ruler who demands to be worshipped as a god. Apocalypse 13.15 Whosoever will not adore the image of the beast should be slain. The Senate erected a statue of Nero in the Temple of Mars that was as big as their, their god Mars. Cassius reports that one sinner was killed because he refused to worship Nero and to offer sacrifice to the divine voice of Nero. So man will not kill those who will not worship him. Let's sum it all up. We've taken a quick look at Nero, a very brief, edited look at Nero, a man the fathers and doctors have always considered to be a very clear type of antichrist. We've seen that he's raised up in a murderous, sinful family. We've seen he carried on this behavior by murdering his own mother, stepbrother, wives, and children, among others. 
He's seen he's a sorcerer and associated himself with wizards and sorcerers and consulted demons to guide him in making his decisions. We've seen he's absolutely shameless, murderous pervert who spent money like it's going out of style and lived in an outrageous style. We've seen he ordered the burning of Rome and then blamed the Catholics and persecuted the church for 42 months, killing Catholics with crucifixions and horrible tortures, even using them as living torches to illuminate his garden at night. Parenthetically, St. Clement, Pope St. Clement, third pope, uh, seems to indicate that Nero was actually present when St. Paul had his head cut off, that he wanted to make sure that he could witness that. We've seen that Nero demanded to be worshipped as a god and killed those who refused to do so. Let's close with a quote from that great scripture commentator, Cornelius Lapide, quote, As St. John Chrysostom, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine and St. Jerome say Nero is a remarkable type and figure of the Antichrist because he is unbelievably proud, incredibly perverse, incredibly powerful, absolutely wicked ruler. Nero was a complete tyrant, just as the Antichrist shall be. He wished to be worshipped as a god. He supported and sponsored Simon Magus and other evil sorcerers. He's an enemy of Christ and Christians, and he raised up the first psalm persecution. The same spirit which moved and operated Nero and similar tyrants will operate Antichrist himself, the head and prince of total iniquity. Close quote. There's a lot to meditate on there. I'll point out a few things. The perversity. Besides now, there's been one other time in history when these kind of new marriages were legal and supported by the state. The same spirit that's spreading around the world right now in marriage. Nero and them. He supported Son and Magus. Son and Magus, all the father's point, is the father of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, New Age movement, different words, same phenomenon. Witchcraft, paganism, idolatry. Two doors down, we've got a pagan idol. I've got the Blessed Mother on my front steps, and they have Pan here in Kansas. He's an enemy of Christ and the Christians, the spirit of the world. The same spirit which already moved and operated Nero will operate Antichrist himself, the head and prince of total iniquity.